Hi, this is Pastor Matt, and I want to welcome you to our Blue Oaks Church podcast. At the end of this episode, feel free to download our Blue Oaks Church app, where you'll be able to access resources, events, and ways to get connected at Blue Oaks and in the community. The app is the easiest way to share this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around Blue Oaks. Most importantly, though, I just hope that you enjoy this episode and it inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. I'll tell you my goal today. It's that you would be filled with hope. As I was working on this message, I thought about so many people I know. I thought about so many people in our church who've had so many disappointments in the last year. Uh, People I know and love, people you know and love. I cannot tell you how deep my desire is for you to be filled with hope today, for hope to run real deep and burn real bright in you. And it's not dependent on how any circumstance in your life turns out. So here's what I want to do. I want to talk about hope by looking at a three-act story. I want to start by looking at God's original intent for his creation, uh, what the original hope was in a sense, and then look at exactly how that got disrupted uh, by the fall. And then I want to look at how Jesus and his followers understood hope and how that hope changes everything. Finally, I want to talk about what this all means for you and me. So first, let's look at what God originally intended for his creation. Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Have you ever wondered how God felt about his creation? Well, the intimate care of God for his creation is expressed in verse 2. The earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The ancient rabbis had a very tender image for God's love for his creation. Uh, This is from an ancient rabbi. I was considering the space between the upper waters and the lower waters, the second verse in Genesis. And the spirit of God was brooding on the face of the waters like a dove, which broods over her young. Again, this is an ancient rabbinic teaching. The throne of divine glory was standing in space, hovering over the face of the waters, even as a dove hovers over its nest. The rabbi said God hovers over his creation like a dove, the way a mother hovers over her children, protecting and nourishing and caring. God had great plans for his creation, like a dove hovering over her young. Okay, so hang on to that image. We'll come back to that. The peak of creation comes in Genesis 2, 7. After God created everything else, the writer of Genesis says this, Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. God forms a human being from the dust of the earth. Uh, He reaches down and makes a little dust bunny, but it's not alive yet. Old story, a kid hears this verse, from dust you were made to dust you return, and says to his mom, I looked under my bed and I'm not sure, but someone is either coming or going. God breathes into the man the breath of life. In both Hebrew and Greek, the word for breath is the same as the word for spirit. Only human beings received breath, a spirit, directly from God. God breathes into this little lump of clay, and it becomes a living being in God's own image. Remember that, okay? 
At the end of the sixth day, the writer says God finished the work he had planned to do. And at the end of the sixth day, God looked out and saw all that he had created. And he said, it is finished. And he rests on the seventh day. Now the rabbis noted something. God deliberately leaves certain things unfinished. Uh, like the animals had not been named yet, and the garden still needed tending. Uh, he gives human beings things to do. Uh, God's plan was for people to help him complete the task. There's a two-word phrase used to describe this, uh, tikkun olam. It's a Hebrew phrase, and it meant to fix the world, to help the world realize its full potential. Now, of course, God could have done that, but he deliberately allowed certain things to go unfinished so that human beings could partner with him, uh, could help the world reach its full potential. God places the man in the garden and tells him to work and take care of it in Genesis 2.15. The first man is a gardener, and he partners with God in the care of God's creation. Tikkun olam, together they'll help the world reach its full potential. Remember that, okay? Okay, so that's the first act. God hovers over his creation. God cares for it. Uh, the second act of this story is the fall. And the Lord commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Uh, but Satan tempts the woman, Genesis 3, 4. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of the fruit, your eyes will be opened. In other words, you really are kind of blind right now, but if you disobey God and eat of the fruit, you will be like God, knowing between good and evil. And the woman eats, and the man eats, and then verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. What did they experience when they opened their eyes? In a word, despair. What they saw was shame and guilt and death. What they saw made them want to hide from God and hide from each other and hide from themselves and they experienced despair. They had never experienced despair before. Never for a moment had a despairing thought entered their mind. Now they would never be free from it. Now something not only happens to the man and the woman, uh, we don't talk about this too often, but something actually happens to creation as well. Genesis 3.17, to Adam he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you. The ground itself, the, the earth itself, uh, something happened to creation. It also falls under the curse. Now the earth, the earth will produce thorns and thistles. Uh, have you ever wondered where thorns and thistles came from? It was not part of God's original plan. He said to the man, by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food. He said to the woman, uh, your pain in childbearing will be very severe. Remember, this is part of the curse, bad pain. So that even though her husband is very kind and goes to birthing classes to coach her on how to breathe during delivery, uh, she'll say bad words to her husband and reject her husband's coaching and promise to get even with her husband and tell him that she wishes he were not there, uh, which for the next period of life isn't a bad idea. Uh, I think this is what the writer of scripture was getting at. Nature itself, God's creation, 
falls under the curse. Cursed is the ground because of you. Now, the earth is really broken and no son or daughter of Adam and Eve can fix it. Tikkun olam, to fix the world, is precisely what we cannot do. And Adam and Eve are banished from the garden. Verse 23 says, So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. This part of the story means is human beings would no longer be able to live with God in the old way. There's now a, a gap between the earth and the heavens. In the beginning, where did God live? On earth or in heaven? God was present everywhere. There was no gap. Now there is a gap. God is not hovering over their lives and their world in the same way now. And the primary word for that in the Old Testament is the word exile. The primary problem of the human race is sin and its consequence is exile. Now you need to know about this. Uh, the cru this is crucial to understand Jesus's mission. N.T. Wright, who is maybe the greatest biblical scholar in our day, says that understanding this idea of the exile is maybe the single most necessary idea to grasp Jesus's mission as it was perceived by the people in his day. And here's what happens. After the fall, the human race goes into exile. God begins again with the people of Israel. God creates Israel, and they're going to be the community through whom God, tikkun olam, fixes the world through his people, and he leads them miraculously. And when they're exiled in slavery in Egypt through the Exodus, uh, they were redeemed. Uh, they were brought out, and that becomes a major theme in Jesus's day, a deliverance from slavery. And they're brought into the land flowing with milk and honey, and David sits on the throne and the temple is built and they're going to be the way through which God fixes the world. And then something goes terribly wrong. The Assyrians come and the Babylonians come and the Persians come and the Israelites go into exile and they're not fixing the world. Now this is the spiritual, emotional, relational problem of their lives. They're supposed to be people of God fixing the world, but they're in exile. Everything is wrong. Now, a return from exile would mean the sins of God's people had been forgiven. And so these two concepts, the return from exile and the forgiveness of sin, kind of went hand in hand. Let's just look at an example in Lamentations 4.22. The forgiveness of your sin, O daughter of Zion, will be accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. The connection is crystal clear. The prophets write over and over again about this connection between exile and the sinfulness of God's people and the promise of the forgiveness and cleansing of sin and the return from exile. The writers of scripture say over and over again, when sin has been forgiven, then will come the return from exile. Then will begin the tikkun olam, the fixing of the world. But until then, the exile goes on. The experience of exile is challenging. The pain of being disconnected from others or distant from the place you wanted to be in life. It can leave you feeling hopeless, lost, alone, even forgotten. You maybe feel abandoned by God, considering giving up on Him because He seems to have given up on you. We're not the first to experience this. 
As Matt said, the people of Israel experienced exile more than once. In one of those seasons, God gives them a counterintuitive command. In the book of Jeremiah, we read that instead of saying, hang on until I get you out of here, God tells the Israelites to invest themselves where they are. Bloom where you're planted, in other words. Jeremiah makes it clear that even while painful, exile can also be a time of tremendous spiritual growth. We've spent the last number of weeks talking about spiritual growth and the core beliefs that are the most catalytic for our lives. Next week, we'll jump back into the Grow series, and I encourage you to join us. You see, Jeremiah reminds us that God has not forgotten us and that we're not without hope. Blooming where you're planted begins and ends with hope. Listen, God's goal may not be to remove you from the exile you're in, but to free you in the midst of it. We can't and don't understand so much in seasons of exile, but we can hold on to hope. Let's rejoin Matt as he continues with the arrival of Jesus and what that means for our hope. All right, now I want to look at the hope Jesus and his followers had and how that changes everything. Are you ready? This is where it gets good. Mark chapter 1 is the beginning of the ministry of Jesus. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw what? Heaven being torn open. What does this mean? Mark is not talking here about some clouds parting in a blue sky showing through. I mean, this is not some weird, you know, cloud formation. Something fundamental is happening here. It's the beginning of everything a Christian stakes his or her life on. The reign and rule and the presence of God has now come to earth. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a what? Like a dove. This image doesn't just come out of nowhere. This image has been around a long time. God wants the people who will follow Jesus to know God is hovering very close once again. The God who is creating something in Genesis has begun a new work of creation. And in verse 14, Jesus goes into Galilee and begins to proclaim the good news, the gospel. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. The heavens have opened up. Jesus is saying, in him, the exile is over. The kingdom of God is here. That is the presence and the power and the reign of God is now available to ordinary people like you and me. You can live in it if you want to. You can walk right on in. Anyone can. It doesn't matter where you've been or what you've done. You can live in the kingdom of God right here and right now. Now, I want you to see why Jesus' crucifixion is so devastating to his followers. This is from the story in Luke 24 about uh, two of Jesus' followers, most likely a husband and a wife, on the road to Emmaus. Jesus had already been crucified, and there are rumors that something has happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them named Cleopas asked him, 
Are you the only one visiting Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things, he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. He was going to be the one to end the exile. He was going to be the one to bring the kingdom of God. And what killed their hope is not just that Jesus died. To understand the story, you have to understand the significance of the fact that he was crucified. He didn't just die. He was crucified. Crucifixion is what happens to people who think they're going to liberate Israel and find out they're mistaken. Crucifixion is what happens to people who think they're going to bring the kingdom, but they're wrong. And it didn't just happen to Jesus. There were at least 10 or 12 movements that externally looked a lot like Jesus within a century or two of him on either side. A young Jewish reformer would gather a band of followers, Judas the Galilean, as mentioned in in, in the book of Acts. Uh, He came before Jesus and he was crucified. And that was the end. About 100 years later, another man, Simon ben Kosaba, came and many of the leading rabbis said of him, here at last is the Messiah. And Rome hunted him down like a dog, and he was crucified. I mean, you follow a leader who gets crucified, and you know you're rooting for a loser. I mean, you follow a leader who gets crucified, and you are on the wrong team, and the exile is not over. But then Jesus begins to explain his suffering and death, which they thought was the end of their hope. But it was, in fact, part of God's plan. And something had happened that was so good that they hadn't even dreamed of it. And that something was the resurrection. Now, the Jewish expectation when they used the word resurrection was that it would be a corporate resurrection. It was something that would happen to the people of Israel, signifying the end of the exile. Uh, When the resurrection came, that meant the resurrection for everyone. And what Jesus is saying is, in his resurrection, the beginning of the resurrection has now started. That's why Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 is reflecting on precisely this when he says, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For in Adam all die, so in Christ all all will be made alive. Jesus is the first fruits of those raised from the dead. The first fruits is the beginning of the harvest. The rest of the harvest is just a matter of time. Jesus is saying now the resurrection has begun. You know, we live in the day of the resurrection. I mean, that's what the followers of Jesus came to conclude. Look at Luke 24, 28. This is back on the road to Emmaus with Cleopas and his wife. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus continued on as if he were going further, but they urged him strongly, stay with us for it is nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were what? Opened and they recognized him. Luke here uses the same wording as the Greek version of Genesis. Their eyes were opened. So long ago in Genesis, a husband and wife have their eyes opened and they see the beginning of sin and death. 
and the human race lives in exile for thousands of years. And now Luke says two human beings, a husband and wife, have their eyes opened and they see the defeat of sin and death. Let me ask you the question of ultimate significance. Have your eyes been opened? I mean, Jesus is with you today, just as he was with Cleopas and his wife on the road to Emmaus. Do you recognize him? Do you know what gripped the church and made them with no resources, no money, no power, no soldiers, an unbeatable force in the ancient world? It was the reality and power of the resurrection. Now, just as in Genesis, God finished his work on the sixth day, looked out at all that he had done and said, it is finished, it is good. So according to John 19.30, on the sixth day, Friday, sixth day of the week, Jesus is on the cross and he cries out. What are his final words? It is finished. But now it's the work of recreation. Now it's the work of redemption. It is finished. He's done it and it is good. And on the seventh day, his body is laid in the tomb to rest. Now look at John 20, verse 1. Early on the what? Early on the first day of the week. I'll look at John 20, 19. On the evening of the what? On the evening of the first day of the week. N.T. Wright says, John doesn't waste words. Uh, When he tells us something like this twice, he knows what he's doing. Uh, It's not just that Easter happened to be on a Sunday. John wants his readers to figure out that Easter day is the first day of God's new creation. Easter morning is the birthday of God's new world. And we live in God's new world. The good news is the kingdom of God is available to anyone and everyone now because of the resurrection. It's available to ordinary, fallen, foolish people like you and me. And we get to live in it if we want to. It's no accident, N.T. Wright says, that the church shifted the Lord's day from the seventh day to the first day because we're resurrection people now. We are first day people now because the exile is over. On the first day, John says, Mary is standing outside the tomb. Let me ask you a question. Where is the tomb located? Do you know? It's in a garden. John 19, 41. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Mary sees Jesus, but Jesus, like with the couple on the road to Emmaus, she doesn't recognize him, and she's weeping. Uh, John 20, 15, Jesus asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, and in a sense, she's right. He's the new man. Uh, He's the new Adam. There's a fascinating passage in 1 Corinthians 15. I don't have time to look through it right now, but Paul gives Jesus two titles. In 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 45 to 48, he says Jesus is the last Adam and the second man. He's the last Adam. He's the end of that fallen, exiled, broken race. All of that fallenness and exile falls on him. That's what had to happen. He's the last Adam. No one has to live in that part anymore. No one has to. He is the last Adam. Adam, and he's the second man. Just as God reached down to a little lump of clay way back in the garden and breathed and that man became a living spirit, one more time in a garden, God the Father looked down at a tomb, at a lifeless body, at a lump of clay, and God breathed into him the breath of life, and that lump of clay came to life. He's the second man. 
and you and I can be a part of a new race. The Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. And it doesn't stop there. John 20, 19, this is after the resurrection and kind of a foreshadowing of Pentecost. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, when the doors, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands inside. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. So they're starting to get it. This is the resurrection. And Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he did what? He breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. As the Father breathed into the nostrils of Adam and Eve and said, now live, be living beings in my image. Now Jesus breathes his own breath, the breath of life, the breath of God, the Spirit of God into his followers and says, receive the Spirit of God. What a beautiful picture of what Jesus wants to do for you and me today. He wants to breathe his life into us. He wants us to live in the power of the resurrection. He wants us to live as a new creation. He wants us to live in the kingdom of God. He wants us to live in the reign and the power and the presence of the Spirit of God. So here's the choice you and I have to face today. It's the same choice the couple on the road to Emmaus faced. It's the same choice Mary faced. It's the same choice the disciples faced. It's the same choice Adam and Eve faced. And I want to put it like this. Every time you and I face any kind of difficulty or any kind of adversity, uh, we have a choice. We can give in to despair. You and I can. Just like the couple on the road to Emmaus did, just like Mary did, just like the disciples did, just like Adam and Eve did. And maybe for us it happens like this. When I entertain thoughts like, you know, if I don't get what I want, I'll never be happy. Or if I don't succeed at this project, I'll always be a failure. Or if I'm, uh, I'm afraid about money, or I'm afraid about some illness, or I'm afraid about being alone, or I'm afraid I'll never measure up. Despair and discouragement will rob you of life, just as it did Mary and the disciples and Adam and Eve. It will cause you to live in regret about the past, anxiety about the future, and preoccupation in the present. It will make you anxious and sad and depressed. It will make you want to quit. And you need to know God never does this. God never calls anyone to despair. Let me give you a verse of scripture that will help your mind be formed in this regard. In Psalm 42 and 43, the psalmist keeps saying, why my soul are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Do you ever talk to yourself? The psalmist talks to himself. And then he says these words, put your hope where? In God. And I don't know about you, maybe hope comes real easily for you. Sometimes it does for me, but there are a lot of times I have to fight for it. And those words that the psalmist speaks to his soul, I sometimes speak real soberly to mine. Uh, Sometimes I say them out loud. Uh, I do it when I'm by myself because I don't want other people to think that I'm losing it altogether any more than they already do. Uh, But sometimes I just say, Matt, you need to put your hope in God. And you can do that as well. When you face a challenge, you can do this. You can say, God, I put my hope in you. God, your kingdom come, your will be done in my life. God, let your kingdom come into this situation. It doesn't mean I can always control the outcome. It doesn't mean it's always going to end up the way that I want it to. 
but God's kingdom can always come into it. And then focus your thoughts around things like, I believe God is hovering around me right now, so close. I believe that because of Jesus, the resurrection is a settled fact. So what on earth, like what in God's name do I have to worry about or be afraid of? I believe that the spirit of God has been breathed into me and is at work in me and is my great partner throughout every moment of my life. You know, hope will bring energy and endurance and creativity and joy and the ability to deal with whatever life throws at you. It just will. And ultimately, it's the hope that all of this is really true. That you're not just listening to this for your health. We're not just talking about stuff that doesn't really matter. That in fact, the resurrection really did start with this man, Jesus, and that one day it will catch up to us. And not only that, but that God's redeeming work will not be stopped. That in the words of Paul, in that great section on hope in Romans 8, creation itself, that's under the curse now of thorns and thistles, creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. And God will fix the world. And Jesus says, it's all true. And he asks you to put your hope in him. All right, let me pray for you and then Michaela and the team will lead us in a closing song. God, I pray for everyone who's listening right now that you would uh, breathe your life into them, that you would give them uh, hope because of the resurrection. And uh, God, we just, we thank you so much that this is true, that you have brought your kingdom and it's available to everyone and everyone. We can walk right into it and live the kind of life that you want us to live. God, I pray that you would help us to go uh, spread this hope into our families and our work and our neighborhood. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I want to just leave you with one more thing. Jesus said this to his followers. As the Father sent me, so I send you. All right, so let's go out into our world, sent by Jesus himself, and bring hope into our relationships and into our homes and into our work and into our neighborhoods. Hey, once again, thanks for listening. We hope you found something in this week's message to take away and apply to your life this week. Uh, If you live in the Bay Area, we would love to have you join us for one of our weekend services. We meet on Sunday mornings at 845, 10, and 1115. Uh, For directions or information about what we have for you or your family, your students, you can go to blueoaks.church or download the app today. Uh, And we hope to see you on Sunday soon.